Well, hello, everybody. I'm here with the uh, very famous, very amazing Captain Charlie Plum. I know he's going to play down all the adjectives, so I'm going to get him out right away before he can speak. Uh, I had the great pleasure of hearing Charlie many, many years ago at a convention, and he has the most amazing signature story of any speaker I've ever had the pleasure of listening to. A uh, little caveat, a little warning ahead of time, it is not a pleasant story, but what an honor to know you, sir, and thanks so much for being on the call today. Well, thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate that. And I, I, we'll, we'll argue this point about being famous and uh, <laughs> revolutionary well, words you used. <laughs> before I'm we just, get, I'm just a, a farm kid from Kansas is what I am. I told you, man. He's a humble man. He's a humble guy. Before we tell everybody your story, Charlie, and, and what makes uh, your message so amazing and so inspirational to people all over the world, um, I want to ask you something that, uh, well, I'll give you a rough analogy here. We're, we're at a lot of parties this time of the year, and I uh, often see people with tattoos. And sometimes they have a, a portrait of somebody on their hand or on their arm and there are dates by the portrait. You know right away it's, a, it's like a, an ink epitaph, right? And everything's going great during the party, but when you say to that, what's that about? You know the answer's gonna be somebody passed away and I got this in memory, and it takes the conversation down about eight or 10 notches, and it's, you can't recapture the spirit again. Mm -hmm. I always wondered why people did that as a memorial to a loved one, and then it, it like re reboots the party every time you get asked about it. Your message is one that take, can take you back to a place of your brainstem that you don't want to visit. Before we tell everybody what your story is, how do you deal with that? Is that in a separate compartment of your, of your life now? Actually, it's, it really is not um, a place that I don't want to visit. Okay. Um, it, at the time, of course, it was very painful. Uh, at the time, it was uh, you know, about as, <clears throat> as much stress as I ever want to be uh, under. But when I look back on the situation, I see the positive parts. And I think within every adversity of life, there are positive parts. And so I just pick out the positive parts and think about those. Good for you. Um, well, it, you know, it, 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 it's almost, I learned this in the prison camp. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a matter of survival. If you spend your life, you know, in anger and in depression and, uh, you know, it, it, with this vitriol, within your body, you're, you're killing yourself. And so, you know, your analogy of, of remembering the past, I, I think people put that on, the, the, the tattoos on their bodies to obviously in, in reverence and in memory and, and to, uh, to salute somebody who they loved uh, very much. And so I think that, that, they, that from their point of view, you know, from the point of view of the person that's trying to remember, it's a positive experience. Uh, however, you know, anyone walking up to somebody and start talking about a dead person, <laughs> that's going to bring down the, the party a bit. Well, again, to your point, depending on how they manage it, right? So I'm fascinated that you're not afraid to revisit this. In fact, you get paid money to revisit it in keynote speeches and sessions. And, and uh, tell everybody the story now, because not everybody knows the story of Charlie Plum. It's a fascinating tale. Uh, before, uh, thank you for that. Before I uh, do that, let me respond to something you just said. Uh, frequently I will tell audiences that I am talking to myself as well as talking to the audience because I'll tell them I need this message more than they do. Uh, I still have frustrations in life, you know, I have cars that don't start and airplanes that leave without me, and, but, uh, but um, 
when I when I tell myself the message, and it's a message of resilience, it's a message of of survival. It's a, it, it's, it's a message of thriving through challenges. And so, and, and my byline is adversity is a horrible thing to waste. And so if you can look upon your adversity and, and sort of look at it as a puzzle, you know, there's value here. How can I figure out what it is? So the story is this. I was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. Uh, flew 74 successful combat missions. Had a pretty good career going for myself. I was flying the F-4 Phantom Jet, hottest airplane in the world at the time. So at 24 years old, you know, I had this command of this $20 million airplane, which was a lot of money back then. And uh, uh, five days before the end of my tour of duty, I was blown out of the sky. I uh, shot down by a surface-to-air missile, uh, parachuted in the enemy hands, uh, captured, tortured, um, and spent the next uh, nearly six years in a communist prison camp. Well, the war ended, we traded prisoners, and I was released. <clears throat> and several years, several years after I was released, I was in a restaurant in Kansas City, where I used to live. About two tables over, a guy kept looking at me, and I looked at him, and I didn't recognize this gent. He, he came over, he approached me and, and my table and pointed at me, and he said, you're Captain Plum. And I looked up and I said, yes, sir, I'm Captain Plum. He said, you're that guy. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam. You're a fighter pilot. I said, yes, sir. He said, um, Kitty Hawk aircraft carrier, uh, fighter squadron 114, uh, 19th of May, um, you were laying out of the sky. You parachuted into enemy hands, and you spent six years as a prisoner of war. Well, see, he's telling my whole story. And I'm, at this point, I'm kind of dumbfounded, asking myself, who, who is this guy? And so I finally, I said, well, how did you know all that? And he looked at me with kind of a, kind of a twinkle in his eye and a smile. And he said, because I packed your parachute. Well, <clears throat> I was speechless. Uh, and best I could do was stagger to my feet, reach out a very grateful hand of thanks. Uh, he, he, he came up with just the proper words. The guy grabbed my hand, pumped my arm, and he said, I guess it worked. <laughs> so I said, indeed it did, my friend, and I've said a lot of prayers of thanks for your nimble fingers, but I had no idea I'd have the opportunity of expressing my gratitude in person. He said, well, were all the panels there? I said, well, most of them were. Three torn panels in that parachute, and it wasn't your fault. Uh, it was mine. I ejected from that F-4 Phantom. It's 600 miles an hour close to the ground. I was well outside the envelope of that parachute. You did your job, I didn't do mine. I said, but let me ask you a question. Do you, do you keep track of all the parachutes you pack? Do you know of all the lives you've saved? Guy said, no. Now this may be the most important part of that whole evening. He said, no, I don't keep track of all the parachutes I pack. It's enough gratification for me just to know that I've served. Well, um, there's a tradition in uh, the military that if you um, use the parachute that somebody else packed, you know, you, you, you owe them a, a debt of gratitude, and so you buy them a, a, a bottle. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, bottom of I, is the bottle the same as a debt of gratitude these days? Uh, well, it was then. <laughs> I'm not sure it's politically correct anymore, but that was the tradition. <clears throat> and so he and I struck up a, you know, a long conversation over a couple of drinks that night, 
And this, and his point, a very humble guy, his point was, hey, I'm not the only one who packed your parachute. And I said, what? And he said, uh, yes, I did the physical parachute part. He said, but uh, how about your, how about your emotional parachute? You know, how, how did you, how did you learn the forgiveness it was going to take? How, how did you learn the, the discipline it was going to take? Uh, how, you know, how did you learn the integrity that it was going to take to survive six years in a prison camp? And, and what about your spiritual parachute? You know, who gave you, who gave you that panel in that parachute that would allow you to believe uh, and have faith that someday that this experience would actually be beneficial? Um, so, so it was quite, you know, it was quite an interesting conversation that night. And, and so those are the parallels that I draw, that with any challenge in life, you've got a lot of parachute packers. And I, you know, I ask my audiences, who packs your parachute? And have you thanked them for that lately? Yeah. Because, if, you know, nobody is, we'd like to say we're self-made, right? Uh, but nobody is self-made. Uh, there's there all kinds of, you know, there, there are people that, sometimes I think that there's so many people that have helped me along life's rocky, <clears throat> life's rocky road. I, I don't even know a bunch of them. And I, I'd love to thank them, but... And then, you know, the, the question is, well, okay, how about, how about you? Uh, are you a parachute packer? Do you, uh, you know, do you support folks in time of need? Uh, do you pack their parachutes? So let's break this down, Charlie. Uh, you know, I teach presentation skills. I, I introduced this segment by talking about something called the signature story. A lot of speakers, the people that are on the circuit, people that want to be on the circuit, they have to craft the signature story out of whole cloth. They've never served. Uh, they've never been in a heroic situation or a victim situation. Uh, they have to either fabricate it or tell somebody else's story. I think you can fabricate a signature story, but you, you always want to tell the truth, even if it's somebody else's truth. Agree. When I heard you deliver this the first time, you were pulling so many elements into the story. I, I think you began this talk both the same way both times I've seen it. Maybe you still do it this way, and that's fine. It's a great signature. Where you're walking uh, on the stage, um, uh, simulating what it was like to be in a uh, uh, at the Hanoi Hilton, is that correct? Yes. And there's a certain number of steps, and that's how many steps you go on the stage. Is that true? That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, uh, the prison cell that I was in was eight feet long and eight feet wide, and so I so I begin my presentation in silence, just pacing three steps one way and three steps the other. And, and the audience can, can hear my footsteps, but I, I, I'm not seeing anything. And in, in most situations, when I can do it this way, I do it in darkness as well. So I, the audience- I've seen a, a light on the, uh, or a sh uh, what do you call it? The, the a filter on the light where it actually looks like bars. And I don't know, you can do that every time either, but you're doing your best to simulate, because none of us could ever imagine what this is about. But a signature story is helping the audience imagine that they're in the same situation. And I think the way you, the way you deliver this is there's a lot of theater in it, and it's brilliant. Well, thank you very much. And I, you know, I appreciate your, your uh, response to that because that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Uh, I figure if you can't bring that audience into your world, yeah. you get into their world, yeah. uh, then, then, then all it is is an interesting war story. You know, you're just, you're just talking. I think there is um, some magic in what we do as speakers, and I never ask 
speakers to divulge their magic tricks. I have a few of my own. I don't mind talking about them, but I don't tell everybody overtly what they are, especially before I do them on stage. The uh, one time I saw you, I thought, I think he's got a microphone on the stage, maybe one of those PZM pressure sensitive microphones because his walking sounds, I mean, it's like, it's almost like this has been staged as a musical or as a play. Yeah. Care to comment? Uh, no, I do use a PZM uh, microphone. <laughs> I knew it. And, and, uh, I don't, and I don't think that's a takeaway at all because in some rooms, like some of our platforms, the stages are carpeted. Oh, yeah. It would be a that's takeaway right. completely from the routine, right? That's right. In fact, in, in my speaking contract, you know, I asked okay. them, you know, an uncarpeted stage. And uh, because, it, it, you know, it, and when they can't come up with this, I say, you know, I mean, it, it, it adds... I don't know, 3% to, 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 to the presentation. I can certainly do it without it. I can, I can make that presentation uh, just standing behind a lectern. But oh, by yeah. the way, it's, it, it is a lot more effective when I can describe this prison cell and bring people into that cell, try, try to allow the audience to smell the smells and feel the feels and, and experience my experience. Yes. Uh, so let's stay with the simulation for just a minute. Your speech, like most keynotes, is about 40, 45 minutes, yeah? 45 to an hour. Mm -hmm. How long do you spend in the cell? Because at some point, and I don't remember the exact transition, at some point you, you leave the cell as part of the story, and, 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 you, and, you're, and you're now helping us understand the different metaphors of the different types of parachutes and, and that sort of thing. How long do you actually stay in the cell? How many minutes of the 45 minutes? Uh, four to five minutes. Four to five, okay. One to five, and I, and I do that, do that theatrically as well. Um, the, what I try to do, I mean, ideally, what happens is I start in, in darkness and silence when I start to speak. Mm. I have a, a, a light which defines this eight-foot space. Yes. So I'm speaking in that, that light. When I start into the humor of the presentation, then I bring up the house lights. So that it, so that it, you know, it it, ex, it expands and allow, allows me to go back into, you know, my background and the connection between my life story and, and the audience. So there's a there's theater to it. Now I will tell you this: it, it didn't start that way. You know, I well, first of all, it was probably 15 years after I started speaking that I even ran into the guy in the restaurant. So I never even told that. I didn't that that story wasn't wasn't told until 15 years after I started speaking. The other part is the pacing part was probably, well, it was, it was probably 10 years after I started speaking, I decided that I could attract uh, the attention of an audience by silence and darkness uh, because they aren't expecting it. It's a surprise. You know, they're wondering, well, why don't they turn on the lights? You know? <laughs> You'll appreciate this as a veteran. Uh, I'm told, of course, I, I didn't experience it in person, but I'm told that Winston Churchill used silence very effectively at the beginning of his speeches. Have you heard this as well? Yeah, I, I, have, been, I have been told that as well. Waiting for people to settle down, and then he coughs, and then they settle down some more, and then he fishes out his spectacles, and finally, like, they're, you know, you can hear a pin drop, and then it came out with this big booming voice, you know, and... It was, it, was that, it was a bit of theater there as well. Um, I can tell you, the first time you do that, it's scary. You know, the first, the first time you stand on a, a stage and, and just look at people without saying anything, it really is frightening uh, because you know that they are expecting something that you are not delivering. And 
I love the silence. I, I do a lot of sales coaching and I tell people the best sales presentation is when the salesperson isn't speaking. Right. Because that allows the other person to convey, right? So right. when the lights come up and you're injecting humor, you're starting to get some feedback from the audience other than utter silence. Right. So a couple of things uh, I'm really enjoying about this. Most young speakers, uh, they like to speak extemporaneously. They don't even like to practice. They don't even like to time their speech. Yeah. And we know that the real gifts come from telling the story, not, not a thousand times, but 2,000 times, because that's when the, the layers and the flavors, right, and the tones start to emerge. And in, in some cases, like you say, the, the, this, the, this rarefied special introduction of the pacing. I imagine you rehearse the pacing because you have to stay in, in the light. How else yeah. would you know unless you rehearsed it? That's exactly right. As a matter of yeah. fact, I, I, I have a tape that I'll put on the stage okay. to make sure that I, that I am pacing in darkness where that light's going to show up. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm I'm off kelter. Love it. But you're absolutely right, and uh, and I think it does take a couple of thousand times. And what happens, or at least it has happened in my career, is that I I get accustomed to telling the same story almost to the point. Now, my wife my wife says I go on autopilot, and she doesn't like that <laughs> because she gets scared when I'm on autopilot. <laughs> but being a pilot, yeah, being a pilot. Uh, but what happens is when I'm on autopilot, then that allows my brain to think about the next step or to think about the variations that I can put in here. And sometimes, sometimes it's just an intonation, you know, sometimes it's a gesture. Sometimes it's, it, it, it's, it's pause, it's pausing a half a second more than I did last time, but it allows, you know, doing it 2000 times allows you the freedom to think about what you're doing. And so it, rather than, you know, than worried about, uh, you know, am I saying this exactly the way I said it before? And recalibrate afterwards. Did that extra pause benefit the audience? Did it benefit me as a speaker or you as a speaker in some way? I agree. Uh, you know, I, you probably had a chance to meet some stand-up comedians and other people who do similar types of work. The comedian has to tell the same joke every night. I mean, that's why he's on tour. He's supporting the album or he's backing up the HBO special. He can't change the joke appreciably, but he can do the different shadings of the joke, right? And I've heard comedians say they, they adjust it based on what city they're in or what part of the country. Maybe speak well, a little bit more quickly on the East Coast, slower in the South. Do you notice any uh, differences in your delivery based on geography? Yes, uh, but probably more than geography is just the, the, the personality of the audience that I'm talking to. If I'm talking to young people, if I'm talking to executives, I'm talking to, uh, you know, well, <laughs> I mean, some of the wild audiences that I've talked to uh, in the past, um, and I have to, you know, I have to, uh, to reframe the reference. Um, an ag audience in the Midwest. I spoke to the, um, uh, I talked to Iowa uh, pork producers. In fact, I was in the program uh, right before they crowned uh, the Miss Pork <laughs> Iowa. <laughs> it could have been worse. You could have been her opening act. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they gave her um, a dozen roses that were made out of uh, pork skin. <laughs> yeah <laughs> anyway uh, so you know to an audience like that that you you try to pick out 
what their joys and concerns are. You try to pick out what the buzzwords they use uh, right. and, and, and try to use those. And, you know, and sometimes I, I give them the caveat, hey, I can't just march in here and speak your language, but oh, by the way, I can make you realize that I've done some due diligence that I, that I, that I care. You know, I, that I, I care enough to have spent some hours trying to figure out who you are. And uh, Let's talk about that. So we've got a guy who's a veteran speaker, very successful in his business, uh, mastered the trade craft, has told the signature story 2,000 times, but he still wants to know who he's talking to, the, the old axiom, know your audience, right? Yes. How do you do that? Do you, uh, do you talk to the people that hire you in advance? Is there a form that you work them through or some sort of a fill-in-the-blank thing? What, what's your method for getting to know the audience? I have a two-page questionnaire that okay. I send to the, uh, you know, to, to the sponsor and, uh, and you know, ask them to fill in all these blanks. And then, uh, maybe the, and then I want to talk to them personally. So I have a conversation with them uh, maybe two or three weeks before the presentation. And then, and this is, they're usually the, you know, the senior people, uh, you know, they're the big shots. And then I say, well, I want to talk to one of the, you know, the, the lowest guy. I want to talk to the janitor. I want to see one of the little shots. Big little shots. And, uh, and it's really interesting because lots of times the, the senior people uh, in an organization don't really know what's happening. They, they, they don't know the feelings of middle management and, and, uh, and, what's happening on the cutting room floor. Um, and so, and, 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 you know, the way I look at it is saying my audience, I'm certainly, I'm trying to please the senior management of this outfit, but oh, by the way, you know, the audience is not necessarily the senior guys. The audience is, is how can we, you know, how can we make this work for the team? And, um, and so, no, I, and then I try to show up early and um, get a feel for what's going on. And if I'm an, a keynote speaker after dinner, I'll come in the night before and spend all day in their meetings and figuring out, you know, what they laugh at, what they cry at, um, to figure out what the buzzwords are. And yeah. if, there's, you know, if there's a set of core values, I'll memorize those core values and I'll spit them back to them. Uh, if there are uh, people in the audience that they revere, I'll, I'll, I'll try to quote them or point them out. So, and the, you know, the idea is that, 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 the way I look at it is if they want the Charlie Fum story, you know, you show my video. But if they really want me to get into the hearts and minds of the audience, I need to be there. Yeah. So. I, uh, I heard a phrase the other day that said if uh, that we use presentations in brochures, sorry, we use websites and brochures to inform people, but we use presentations to change behavior. You're well, exactly yeah. right. You're there for a much more meaningful job than to just entertain or uh, inform people about what it was like. You want them to be different. And that's another key part of the signature story. The story itself is magnificent. I have a few more questions about that if you have time. Uh, it's not just the story, it's, it's all the nuances of the story. The, the parachute as a metaphor, a psychological parachute, intellectual parachute, spiritual parachute. Uh, the idea that somebody else often packs your parachute for you so it's not a solo activity, and then of course the the, the punchline from the parachute packer, uh, the uh, uh, job well done is its own reward, right? And that's a long way from being in in in, in a PO as a PO, a POW in in Vietnam, right? This idea of a job well done is its own reward. 
So you're covering a lot of ground in 45 minutes. I think it's a magnificent piece of theater. Well, thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate that. I try awfully hard to, um, to connect. And I recognize that, yeah, I can tell the blood and guts of, the, of a prisoner of war, you know, I mean, and, and, and people have seen that. But in, well, first of all, it has very little value because mm -hmm. it, it's, it's a long way. It's, it's an experience that very few people, I hope and, and pray, will, will not have that experience. And so what is the connection? You know, what, what is the connection? And so, so I try my best to explain to them that the biggest problems that I had as a prisoner of war are the biggest problems that they have. You know, problems of, of frustration and, and humiliation and, uh, you know, failed marriages, uh, uh, you know, a lost opportunity, uh, uh, failing, a, you know, a test or, or getting fired from a job or uh, a divorce. And, and these, what I'm saying is that these experiences, these adversities in your life can cause the same response that you could expect from a prisoner of war. Uh, and, and so... To me, that's the connection. And it's not, it turns out that it's not really a war story at all. You know, it's just a story of a guy with a problem. And hey, we all have problems. <laughs> well, this idea of relevance is really important. I, I think if, uh, if anybody watching, any student of speaking or presentations is paying attention, almost everybody that gets in front of the stage, or gets on the stage, goes through some process of letting us know that he's just like us. Yeah. Or she is just like us. It may yeah. not be true. In fact, those are the least believable and least authentic presentations when the guy finishes his thing and I, I'm like, yeah, you're not like me at all, man. You know, we spent 45 minutes trying to convince me of that and I didn't buy it. So some people have trouble getting this across. You mentioned blood and guts a minute ago, Charlie. One of the big challenges that speakers have these days is we yak too much. We go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. And this idea of being concise and getting to the point and trimming all the fat from the bone um, has become a lost art. How do you know what to leave out of the POW part of the presentation? There were some blood and guts. There were some unpleasant things. Do you, and maybe, uh, maybe I shouldn't be asking you this because it's like teasing you. Maybe you tell us now. Is there something that you don't tell us in the keynote speech that maybe you share with people in other environments? Or do, you, or do you let it all hang out? Do you not edit at all? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, there are some, certainly there are some stories that I'll tell my buddies, you know, the guys I was over there with, you know, we, we get together, we have reunions and, and we, uh, we, we talk to each other and there are stories there that are applicable uh, one to another. And of course, we are, we're all men. And so we got the kind of the locker room language going on there. And so those are some of the things that I, that I don't tell an audience. And of course, in this, in this day of political correctness, which I rue, but, uh, you know, I, I have to, I have to uh, be careful not to offend uh, as you do. And, uh, and so, I, so, I, so I won't tell some of those stories. But, but other than that, uh, and I don't go, you know, I, I talked a little bit about the torture and if people want to know exactly what it was like, and a lot of people do, uh, I, I, I will tell them, but, um, but I, don't, I don't offer that without asking. But the whole idea of uh, trying to detect what in your presentation you should leave out <clears throat> is uh, very timely for me because I'm preparing for a TED talk. <laughs> and, uh, 
And I have about eight hours of material committed to memory. I got to put that into 18 minutes. <laughs> That's right. TED Talks are 18 minutes. And they're, they don't, and they're rehearsed and they do not fool around on the, on the timing. That's right. The stage drops off, you know, when the 18 minute mark comes around. But but that's one of my biggest problems. In fact, I'm polling a lot of the people that have heard my presentation many, many times. I said, okay, these are the essential parts, you know. But oh, by the way, there are like 40 essential parts, and I'm supposed to narrow this down to one theme? Yeah. So, uh, but you're absolutely right. And I think as speakers, sometimes we get so enamored with our stories and what we have to say and our talent and saying it. We just want to go on and on and on because we don't want the audience to miss any part of it. Yeah. They don't know what they're missing if you don't say it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Editing is a tough thing because um, it's like our baby and, and we don't want our baby to lose an arm or a toe or a finger. You know, that's the complete thing. Right. Right. But um, a good analogy that I like to use when I'm telling people about this is if you, if you normally use uh, a 56 slide PowerPoint presentation, you should probably consider eliminating 10% of those slides right now. And 10% of 56 is 5.6 slides. So if you're going to round up, you're going to take six of them out. And so the next question becomes, well, which six? Exactly. And I'll tell you which six. It's the six that people don't remember. It's the six that people, they don't laugh at it. It's the six that you want to blow through so quickly because even you're bored with them, with the content of those six slides. Um, and metaphorically, I think it works the same way in a 45-minute slot. You have to figure out where the weakest link is, right? What is the piece that's not serving? And I love your idea of polling people to ask them about, about that because sometimes we're too, we're too close to see the forest through the trees, yeah? Very true. Well, I, and one of the things I'm going back through and getting some of the critiques of my presentation, you know, people will say, whoa, that, you know, that parachute story, that, that was really meaningful to me. But there are several other things that I've said in speeches that people will, will come back and they'll say, you know, you talked about, the, the eight foot prison cell, but the real problem was this eight inch box between your ears. It's a mental game. And some people really remember that gesture and the, and the metaphor of being in, in, in your own little prison. Um, and, and so, you know, so many of these little things that people respond to, and I'm trying to, you know, figure out it, it, how, I, how I put that in 18 minutes. I love, I love this crafting. I never get tired of doing it. I saw you do this just now. So I, I've got a, I got a freebie for you. You can use right. it if you want. Right. Yeah. Okay. In television, the director goes like this. Oh, oh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. And you take a little practice to get your, uh, that's how they adjust the, um, that's great. the proportion, right? Yeah. And yeah. so uh, you're welcome. That. You can have that. <laughs> I thank you very much. <laughs> um, so uh, I also ask for feedback afterward. I'm asking for what's good. Um, and we're in a, we're in a, a very uh, unusual business where we get a lot of accolades, uh, sometimes many more than we deserve. Um, I came up through the music business and we learned never take um, all that love, all that seriously, any more seriously than you take the most negative reviews, right? Yeah. So because you're somewhere in the middle. Yeah. Um, so when I ask people for feedback, they tell me what they think I want to hear a lot. So I find the better question, and again, this is for the people listening and watching the video, is I say, what did you like least? Or what didn't do it for you? And that's, that's when stuff gets real, man. They, look, they like do a double take, like you seriously yeah. want to know this? And sometimes they have to really think it through themselves because if they really were sold on the emotional piece, well, let's see, where did it slow down a bit? 
And I read one time about the band, you could do it with any band, but the band I read it about was uh, Coldplay. Mm -hmm. How when they're on stage, they watch the, uh, they, they can't see much on the stage other than the exit signs in the back of the arenas. Yep. Yep. And they watch for silhouettes to go past the exit signs. Who's leaving? The silhouettes they see, those are the slowest and weakest songs of the set. <laughs> and those are the songs they swap out. So you can get feedback in all kinds of ways. It is interesting. And you're absolutely right. That's one of the biggest problems I have in my entire career is getting good, solid critique. And I think there, you know, I have a little bit of a problem that even most speakers don't have is that people, I think, have sympathy for me and what I've been through. And so they, they don't want to critique. <laughs> yeah, they're like, you've, you've been through enough, Captain Plum. I, I'm not going to tell you about your weak introduction. Exactly. <laughs> don't let me torture you anymore. That's funny. <laughs> uh, but, but how that, and, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's really the reason, but, but, you know, people want to give us accolades after we finish. And the people, you know, it, it's like retail, you know, if they don't like your product, they're probably uh, not going to tell you. I mean, most people uh, go away. They just don't come back to that store. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I think people are a bit that way in particular, you know, when you, when you've got a story uh, of, that's positive, a story of survival and, and, and thriving through adversity. People don't want to come up and tell you, well, you know, you should have told that story. You should have done it that way. But that's a very good point. Ask them what they, what didn't, ask a, a person what didn't fit in their life in your story. Yeah, and I, I, as much as I like that question, I always ask the other one first, though. I, I, I heard this technique a while back, like best next time. So what did you like best about what I did? You know, juice yeah. me up a little bit, and then what? What can I do better next time? Not what I do wrong, but what yeah. can I do better next time? Yeah. And uh, I find when I'm coaching up and coming speakers, it's the same technique, right? Because if I tell right away, I'm thinking, oh, don't do that, don't do that. But if yeah. that's how I if that's how I convey the information, it, it's it's um, negative, and uh, we don't want to be negative with ourselves or with other people. Um, if you're just joining us for some reason, I'm talking with uh, Captain Charlie Plum. Do you, I don't. Do you still go by Captain? I do. I do. I'm a retired Navy Captain. Okay, and he was a six-year um, member of the uh, resident of the Hanoi Hilton. That six years uh, as a prisoner of war. It was a, a tragic thing, and uh, for anybody to have to go through. And Charlie's one of the few people. Uh, on the circuit, still talking about it. Now, let's review uh, the rosters thinning out a little bit. Uh, John McCain uh, was there, yes? Yeah, John was my flight instructor, and so I knew him uh, before we got into the prison camp together. We were in the same camp okay. for quite a while. He was shot down five months after I was, and uh, and I was the first guy to, to recognize him and communicate with him. I'll be darned. Yeah, he was, uh, he was torn up much worse than I. He had five broken bones when he was shot down, and they were twisting his broken bones to torture the poor guy. He, uh, he wrote a book about it as well, but he, he's been busy with other things, not so much on the speaking circuit. You're really the emissary of this, uh, of this message. Pretty much only a couple of other guys. There are only 591 of us. And so um, there, but there have been a couple of guys that um, have – approach this as a career as I have, but, but most of the guys, you know, while they'll talk, talk at the local, you know, VFW or <clears throat> they go to a school and talk about it, most guys didn't want to become um, speakers. 
Well, when I say that you've become the emissary, I guess that's what I'm getting at is you're polished and you're professional and you're probably reaching a lot more people vis-a-vis your career move. Um, I, I, I don't think it's any kind of career anybody ever plans on, but my gosh, uh, it's a message that people need to hear, especially now. And you're right. We hope nobody ever has to go through it again. Um, Charlie, give us a, a website, a place that, that people can learn more about you, uh, purchase your story, sign up for your training. What's available? Pretty simple, charlieplum.com, and that's C-H-A-R-L-I-E-P-L-U-M-B. So charlieplum.com is my website. Okay. And everything's there. You know, my Twitter address, my Facebook, uh, you know, I'm into all the social media stuff. We'll find you. Yeah. Tell us more about the TED Talk. Do you have a date or do you, can you speak about that? Uh, sure, first February. Uh, I, but then, you know, as you know, they, uh, they tape that. And so hopefully it will, um, you know, it, it, it will be positive and good and it will go viral. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure it will. Where is the talk, where is the recording take place? It's uh, in Thousand Oaks, California. And it's, uh, it's actually part of a school. It's Oaks Christian School is the outfit. So I'll have uh, probably 1,000, 1,500 people in the audience. And so that'll be cool. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, the easiest way, of course, to find that is everybody uh, just search, uh, go to the TED.com site and, uh, and look for our friend Charlie uh, sometime after February 1st. Uh, and I'll have it posted on my website if it's good. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be good. Charlie, you're an inspiration, and you're also very good at what you do. I'm so glad we had a chance to talk today and share some uh, trade secrets with some speakers and presenters that are coming up. Thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate that, and I appreciate what you do. You're, uh, you're a real pro. Thank you, sir. Thanks for staying with us. And uh, more information about my programs and products, everybody, at michaelangelocaruso.com. And if you want to message me there, we'll, uh, we'll see a video of this later with Charlie and also a podcast version. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Michael.